When I attended Cal in the mid-1960s, serving on the yearbook staff was not an extracurricular activity for me. I spent more time in the blue and gold office than any place else. I interviewed important people, carried a press ID, and wore a heavy camera around my neck most days, not one like this. <laughs> the morning after Martin Luther King died, April 5th, 1968, I arrived on campus early for some reason. There were not many people around. Walking past the plywood barriers around the building site of Zellerbach Hall, which was then under construction, I spied a piece of street art and photographed it through tears. In graceful calligraphy, it read, Memphis, April 1968. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if the manner of thy friend or thine own were. Every man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. And that non-inclusive language was written in a sermon by John Donne, who died in 1631. I had heard King and photographed him in Sproul Plaza just a few months before speaking out against the Vietnam War. The emotion of that era still wells up in me when I see photographs or hear recordings of those leaders today, President Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy. I have felt less connected with Malcolm X than with the King, with Dr. King and the Kennedys. He died, Malcolm X died on February 21st, 1965, when I was still in high school. I had no access to reliable news about African-American leaders in Lodi, California. Although he had been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964, Martin Luther King rose considerably in mainstream media and national prominence during the, uh, a month after Malcolm X's death during the voting rights campaign and the Selma to Montgomery march. Since that time, I've learned a lot about the civil rights movement, which had been a vague and distant experience for me growing up in the Central Valley of California. In recent years, a great deal of historical research has emerged, shedding light on aspects of our heritage as Americans that had been omitted or obscured in my otherwise thorough and 
relatively well-funded public education. Textbooks have improved over the years, but some states, in some states, egregious omissions and misleading narratives continue. Just last week, an article in the New York Times compared high school American history textbooks from California and Texas revealing significant discrepancies, and these were textbooks by the same publisher and the same author. They were tweaked. I invite you to think now for a moment about things you've learned as an adult that reveal gaps in your social studies and history education as a younger person. What topics now claim your attention that you weren't aware of in the past? What insights have you gained about our current situation based on new understandings of the past? My remedial history exploration began with a black history course. I started in 1969, but dropped because I had no context for understanding what the professor, Leon Lipwack, was saying about civil war and reconstruction. I had never heard of reconstruction. What about the lives and cultures of indigenous peoples in North America before the arrival of Europeans? Or racial terror in the Deep South and the Great Migration? Or the incarceration of innocent Japanese Americans and other people of Japanese ancestry during World War II? or the Middle Passage. The life and ministry of Malcolm X is such a topic for me, and I find it instructive to consider his role in our history alongside that of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. To begin with, their life stories have some striking parallels. They're contrasting parallels, but they're still striking parallels. They were born just a few years apart, Malcolm in 1925 and Martin in 1929. Each was possessed of a prodigious intelligence. Their fathers were both Baptist pastors and black liberation leaders. Martin graduated from high school at the age of 15 and entered Morehouse College. Malcolm dropped out of school at age 14 after a well-meaning English teacher discouraged him from pursuing law school, saying it was no realistic goal for uh, N-word. Graduating from college at age 19, 
Martin attended seminary and then graduate school, receiving a PhD in systematic theology from Boston University in 1955, when he was 26 years old. Malcolm reported for the draft at age 18 in 1943 and was issued a 4F classification upon feigning a display of extreme hostility toward whites. This was called psychiatric rejection. Martin was ordained in 1948, the same year that Malcolm converted to Islam. Martin became a pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in 1954. In the same year, Malcolm was promoted to Minister of the Nation of Islam Temple Number no. 7 in Harlem. Martin married New England's conservatory student that he met in Boston, Coretta Scott. They eventually had four children. Malcolm married a nurse, Betty Sanders, Betty X. They eventually had six daughters. Both Martin and Malcolm had direct experience of mystery and wonder. Martin famously felt his fears relieved by a divine presence who came to him at his kitchen table as he sat in prayer after receiving a phone call threatening his life during the Montgomery bus boycott in 1956. While in prison, Malcolm experienced a vision of Elijah Muhammad, whom he faithfully followed after his release from, um, and after his release from prison until he broke with the nation of Islam in 1964. Both Martin and Malcolm traveled extensively in the course of their ministries in the United States and abroad. Both advocated for human rights and global, on a global scale, and both opposed the war in Vietnam. They met in public only once, March 26, 1964, during the Senate debate on the Civil Rights Act. There are also significant differences between the two leaders. For example, Martin was five foot seven, Malcolm was six foot four, wore a size 14 shoe. But I want to leave aside the compare and contrast formula now and focus on Malcolm. While the story of Martin Luther King has become familiar, a familiar part of our national curriculum and public discourse, I have found there is a lot to learn about Malcolm X. He was born Malcolm Little on May 19, 1925 in Omaha, Nebraska. His father was from Georgia. His mother was born in the, on the island of Grenada. Louise Little spoke several languages. She's fascinated by butterflies and caterpillars and the idea of metamorphosis. Earl Little was a Baptist preacher 
and a skilled carpenter, bivocational. Malcolm's parents were both followers of black liberation leader Marcus Garvey and had met at a convention of the Universal Negro Improvement Association in Montreal. The vision of this organization was to unify people of African descent all over the world. When Malcolm was four, the family's home was burned to the ground, then rebuilt from the ground up by his father. When he was six, Malcolm's father was killed on the tracks of a trolley car. Because of their political activism, the Littles had been harassed by white supremacists, members of a group called the Black Legion. This was the Deep North. The group was suspected of starting the fire and also of setting up the trolley accident that had killed Earl Little. Malcolm's mother struggled to feed and care for her family. She was declared insane and institutionalized when Malcolm was 14, and the seven children were split up and sent to live in various foster homes. Two years later, Malcolm went to Boston to live with his half-sister, Ella, in the Roxbury neighborhood. He held several jobs, shoeshine boy, soda jerk, entertainer, I don't know what that means, dishwasher, bartender, messenger, busboy, waiter, railroad porter. Known as Red because of his light skin and hair, he became involved in rough urban nightlife and eventually in hustling, gambling, drugs, and other dangerous illegal activities. He was convicted of burglary in 1946 and served seven years of a 10-year prison term. While incarcerated, he was in one of those prisons that had a, sounds like a fairly decent library. Malcolm read voraciously works of W.E.B. Du Bois, Uncle Tom's Cabin, slave narratives, world history, sociology, and philosophy. In 1948, he became a follower of Elijah Muhammad when he learned about it from his brother, about the nation of Islam. He quit smoking and stopped eating pork. Elijah Muhammad's social analysis made sense to him because it seemed consistent with what he was reading. And it matched his experience of racial oppression and violence. In place of the surname Little, Malcolm adopted X. He explained that X stands for the unknown, as in mathematics it does, since African culture and names had been stripped from his ancestors. Early in his career with the Nation of Islam, he promulgated their apocalyptic mythology. In this narrative, the vengeance of Allah would soon strike, strike down the white race 
which had perpetrated so much evil against the brown and black people of the world. To avoid their own destruction, people of African descent, they believed, needed to form their own nation completely separate from whites. They were not interested in reforming American society because they planned to become independent. Political activism was of no interest in this worldview. The Nation of Islam was founded in 1930 without significant ties to Muslims elsewhere in the world. Malcolm's speeches are full of Old Testament references, not passages from the Quran. He had expressed interest in the worldview of, Muslim, of the Muslim community, but during his time with the Nation of Islam, his ideas were confined to the narrow black nationalist vision of Elijah Muhammad. Malcolm maintained loyalty to Muhammad until 1964. He felt personally betrayed when he learned of Muhammad's hypocrisy. Elijah Muhammad had required strict adherence to a moral code and way of life to which he did not himself conform. After his break with Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm's commitment to Islam was completely transformed. He went on the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca undertaken by every Muslim who has the means and the opportunity. He was moved by the sense of global community he found, and he was surprised by his experience of kinship with Muslims of all races, even whites. Malcolm returned from the pilgrimage, ready to build an American Muslim movement. In his leadership of African-American Muslims, the son of Elijah Muhammad, Wallace Dean Muhammad, who just died about 10 years ago, followed in Malcolm's footsteps rather than those of his father. The movement is now aligned with the mainstream Sunni Islam in this country. On his return from the pilgrimage, Malcolm was ready to cooperate with other civil rights leaders, regardless of their race or religion. Just a couple of weeks before his death in 1965, he traveled to Selma, and this is represented in the film that Arav mentioned, and, and spoke at Brown's Chapel he also met with Malcolm's wife, Coretta Scott King. He knew he had a reputation among whites for advocating violence, and he offered to play bad cop, the bad cop role in the campaign for voting rights. Now many of us remember Malcolm's assertion that black people should seek their freedom by any means necessary. After learning more about him, watching him on YouTube, appreciating his charm, intelligence, and integrity, I started hearing this phrase in a different way. For people who know little about America's history of racial injustice, and that includes most white people in this country, 
it sounds like a threat, an incitement to violence. In fact, he did not invent the phrase. It was translated from a play by Jean-Paul Sartre. But just think about it. He said, by any means necessary. And I ask you, what should be necessary in the United States to enjoy freedom and justice? What means should be necessary? And Malcolm knew for certain from his own experience that any violence, any violent aggression on the part of blacks would be met by overwhelming force against them. As we have learned from Gandhi and Martin Luther King, what turns out to be necessary is civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action. There is a lot to learn about Malcolm. His friend Maya Angelou was asked in an interview, what should young people know about Malcolm X? She replied, they should know he had an incredible sense of humor. Watching recorded interviews and debates, I witnessed his humor and his radiant smile again and again. He used humor with great skill and perfect timing to break the tension of the weighty and painful subject of racial injustice. Angelou also pointed out that he was a faithful, loving person who really loved black people. And she said, she lifted up the courage that he had, the courage to say, I was wrong. Specifically, he had the courage to admit he was wrong when he believed that all white people are blue-eyed devils. One thing I've learned about Unitarian Universalists is that we enjoy learning new things. Ours is a living tradition. We grow and evolve as individuals and collectively as we embrace new insights and discoveries. The more I learn about the history of racial injustice, the more empowered and inspired I feel to address the legacy of slavery and the ongoing struggle against oppression. In approaching this work, those of us with white identity would do well to recognize how we ourselves benefit from the destruction, or the deconstruction, rather, of white supremacist economic structures, political institutions, and cultural norms. It is in our best interest as white people to grow toward spiritual wholeness by unlearning the white identity that distances us so tragically from our fellow human beings. And I want to assure you, when I use the term white supremacist, I am not referring to people. I am referring to the dominant culture of the United States as white supremacists, developed over hundreds of years 
in the interest of economic gain. For people with white identity, white supremacist structures, systems, and norms lie beneath the surface, just as invisible to us as the water they swim in is invisible to creatures of the sea. White supremacist culture does not require white supremacist individuals to keep us in line with the policies and institutions that we must challenge and transform. As we work on the side of love for justice, equity, and compassion, we ought to heed the messages of both Martin and Malcolm. In the words of black liberation theologian James Cone, Martin and Malcolm are important because they symbolize two necessary in ingredients in the African-American struggle for justice in the United States. We should never pit them against each other. Anyone, therefore, who claims to be for one and not the other does not understand their significance for the black community, for America, and for the world. We need both of them, and we need them together. It will take all of us together to overcome the legacy of slavery in America. It will take all of us together to learn what we need to know, to listen with open hearts, to repair the damage, to heal the wounds, to end the nightmare, and create the beloved community we dream about. So may it be.